Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this a very special kitchen edition of uh, FNI Rap Chat with myself, Paul Butler Lennox. Um, flying solo today because Paul Webster is away yet again with his, his uh, short film, uh, his short documentary, uh, The Vasectomy Doctor, which is picking up war- awards all over the place. He's down in Kerry at the moment, which I will be uh, in, in a couple of days, and this will probably go out after that, so uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to that. Uh, so yeah, if you have a chance, uh, the vasectomy doctor is playing at the Kerry Film Festival this weekend, and I presume and lots of others. Uh, Paul wouldn't like the praise if he was here, so I'll do it very discreetly while he's not around. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for that. It's uh, it's a, a brilliant story about uh, a doctor who <laughs> who was uh, basically shot and assaulted by um, a vasectomy doctor. Who, 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 by a customer who wanted his money back, as it were. Uh, so it's really, it's it's one of those stranger, truth is stranger than fiction stories. It's really incredible. Um, in other FNI related news, uh, we have two very interesting workshops coming up next week um, in Dublin Business School on Balfe Street. Balfe uh, Street is a couple of doors up from the Westbury for all you people of refined tastes. Uh, so if you want to, if you if you want to attend either of those, or with Stephen Cleary, um, the first is on gender and power. It's a, an interesting exploration of gender roles in filmmaking, um, which uh, which uh, n- frankly needs to be addressed. Um, it's a screenwriting workshop, but it's very interactive. Um, that's taking place on the twenty third and twenty fourth of next week. And then we have, with Stephen as well, a weekend workshop um, on the 26th and 27th, again in Dublin Business School, uh, just on Bob Street there. And it's called It's Alive, uh, which is uh, horror and genre-based, which I don't think anyone has ever done before, not blowing around trumpet. But um, I think nobody, uh, some of the more successful Irish uh, acquisitions uh, abroad over the last couple of years have been horror movies. And some of the movies that I think are kind of some of the are a departure for Irish filmmaking. We traditionally, we would have been taught, in, particularly in film skills in Ireland, to write what you know. Whereas these are huge departures uh, and and massive successes. Uh, cases in point being um, Lee Cronin's A Hole in the Ground, which was acquired by A twenty four and got an international distribution, and then previously as well, Dave Frain's. Uh, David Frayne's The Cured, uh, the zombie movie. So if you're interested in exploring thematically some of that type of stuff, come along. Um, tickets are available uh, via Eventbrite for both uh, both events and uh, tickets are selling fast. So get on it like a carb on it. Uh, so today uh, we're joined by, amazingly enough, Stephen Cleary. Uh, Stephen is um, a, a dramaturgist, uh, filmmaker, screenwriter, screenwriting coach, and uh, previously was head of development at British Screen for a number of years, uh, and is vastly experienced. So uh, he's in the country. So why not uh, uh, get him in for a chat? Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and we're also joined by Colin McKeown. Colin McKeown is our reg- resident um, screenwriting guru who's been working with us on Get It Made over the last uh, five or six weeks with. Uh, with a group of over 20 people. Um, oh, incidentally, if you um, were having a, a Halloween networking event on the 27th in the Wild Duck, so we're going to bring all the five families together around a table 
and and scare the bejesus out of each other. So do come along to that as well. Again, tickets via Eventbrite. And Stephen, I'm sure, will be at that as well because his class finishes that evening. Uh, how are we doing today, gents? Bite you. Bite you. When I bite you. Uh, good. I'm great. I'm great. It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, Stefano Cleric, uh, Falcher wrote, I bali a clear. I guess uh, good of Mila Mahagot. Thank you very much. It's good to hear it in both languages. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, so, yeah, ordinarily in the podcast, we kind of, I suppose, we touch on uh, the inception of of how cinema forced, um, I suppose, what was your earliest influence in terms of cinema? Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in Africa when I was young, wow. in Zambia. And I used to go on Saturday morning. It was kind of like an old-fashioned thing. They used to have Saturday morning kids shows. And um, it was dirt cheap, which was good because a lot of the Zambian kids were really, really poor, yeah. um, like barefoot and you know, rags, some of them. And so we'd go to the cinema and, and the white kids would be put upstairs because you paid a little bit more and you, there was no great difference. But you'd have a few black kids, but mainly white kids, expat kids, and downstairs were sort of you know, the, the Zambian kids. And you've never seen any of these these shows were raucous beyond my best memory is they showed Godspell and there's a because whatever the film was was whatever was on that week so they didn't like very often have special films for the kids they just showed you whatever was on as, lo- as long as it wasn't kind of the exorcist or something <laughs> um, and it was Godspell and there's a scene in Godspell where the guy that's playing John the Baptist is, is lying on a, in a swimming pool on a lilo um, and the camera pulls back and you realise this pool is on top of a skyscraper um, in New York so right. the, it's a kind of like a track that pulls back and you see his head and then you see his, the lilo then you see the pool then you see the edge of the pool and then you see that the pool is on the top of a skyscraper in the middle of New York and these kids were watching and as the thing pulls back suddenly when they realised that there was a skyscraper <gasps> there's this huge like collective thousand kids simultaneously going <gasps> And this ink draft of breath, and then a pause, which kind of hung in the air, and then this exhale of breath, which is con- accompanied by fucking hell. Did you see <laughs> I that? Curse away, it's fine. You know, and, and this huge, did you see that, went around the room. And I realised that, because we lived in a town of, you know, buildings, where the biggest building was six storeys high. Yeah. They'd never seen a building that high. They never knew that the world contained buildings that high. And it was suddenly, you kind of saw, the whole notion of what the world could be yeah. was exploded by that one shot. And that's my strongest memory of those early days of... Watching movies, America, huh? America, the, the brave, amazing. Um, uh, so, tell us a little bit about um, how you actually got into filmmaking. It's it's funny because I fell into it. I was working in the music business. Um, oh. When I came out of uni, I started a company with a friend of mine, and we were filming black R and B and jazz musicians. We were very keen on uh, that kind of music, and we were making kind of concert films. And we became by a series of uh, fortunate steps essentially the house video team for Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London and we right. were filming artists going through there jazz and we did nice. that for jazz and R&B and we were seriously you know we we were offered at certain points EMI wanted to buy our company we were like yeah but we does that mean we have to deal with rock and roll people and they were like of course you do and they were like, no in that case we are not we were the purists you know we were really snobby about that stuff years later we looked at each other and said what were we thinking but Anyway, so we did that for four or five years, and then I finished, and I went off to uh, work with Nina Simone. I, I, I was, once she was one of the people that I, we worked with, and I became her ghostwriter, again, by a series of steps. 
Um, and I wrote her book, her life story with her. And I was on the road with her for two years. And then I came home and I'd finished writing up the book and I was skint. And I went to see a friend of mine who was working at this company called British Screen. And she said, well, if you've got time, um, you know, there's a pile of scripts in the corner, literally a pile, you know, as, as tall as a small child. Uh, and we need them read. And so I started script reading for them. And that, after a couple of years, after a year, that turned into a full-time job. Mm. And then I then became a development person at British Screen. And then a few more years later, I eventually became head of development. And I, so I spent like two years in a cupboard, literally, <laughs> reading scripts. They, they put me in a room at the back, which is a storeroom. There's no window. And I had a desk and surrounded by scripts. And the British Screen had existed in one form or another since the Second World War. So the boxes around the room in which I worked contained the scripts of every British film funded by the British state since 1946. Um, so I was kind of sitting in an archive reading everyday scripts, which is kind of the best possible preparation for a job in development, you know, because you're reading thousands of scripts uh, in, a, in a year or two years. And so eventually I started actually talking to writers. That was the next step, taking them out of the room and saying, well, here's a, you know, all these people you've been reading, here's a live one. Mm-hmm. And, and, and watching we got a live one and I would sit and watch the writers talk to the development people because I was very junior and just watch the conversation and that's kind of how I began to understand the difference between you know you can have a view on the story your own view, opinion but mm-hmm. getting as it were the script better is a lot more than just saying well here's where you're going wrong which is kind of what I thought at the beginning is you know you read it you work out what's wrong with it you tell the writer that's what's wrong with it, the writer fixes it and then as soon as you get in a room with a real writer, you kind of go, oh, that's not going to work. And also, I was wrong half the time. When the writer starts to talk, you go, oh, yeah, well, I was wrong about that, and I was wrong about that, and I was wrong about that. So you suddenly think this process is a bit more complicated and a bit more organic and a bit more about a conversation. A collaboration about, more so. You know, you're not yeah. giving notes. That yeah. doesn't really work like that. Um, certainly not at that stage. Maybe, you know, towards the very end, you might have to be more precise and say, look, there's three things before you shoot next week, you know, or whatever that we might need to talk about. But it's certainly the beginning stage is much more of a, an exploration that you have to do together. And the skills to do that yeah. take a long time to kind of, you know, to, to get in yourself as well as to, you know, to, 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 to provoke a writer to get to the best of themselves. It's kind of what mm-hmm. I think the job is. True advice. Yeah. yeah. Very, very, not to oversimplify, but very much, you know, a case of putting together a jigsaw puzzle together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so can you tell us what, for example, and this is something that comes up quite uh, a lot in the podcast. How does somebody, even in a position like yourself with, you know, X amount of years of experience, how do you deal with rejection? Well, the first thing is you do, you sit back and I kind of allow, I don't allow myself, but you, 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 it's emotional. The first response is I always think, you know, it makes you feel something and you've got to, got to walk around with that feeling, which is pain, you know, and um, annoyance. And I tend to, you know, think about what did I do wrong? And then you go through that phase of, I, I messed it up. I mean, you know, and then you kind of go, well, maybe I didn't, maybe it was actually this, the circumstances were more complex than that. And it's just a situation. And it's, so you did, I, you work out, I try to work out, did I do something that I could have done better? Mm-hmm. Or was it a situation that was just going, always going to be like that? Was it a set of conditions that I didn't understand uh, fully? Um, quite often, I come to the conclusion that the world is full of idiots and I'm working, I'm working in a world of idiots and it's a tragic tragedy that I have to do so. <laughs> and that kind of makes me feel good for a while. And then I kind of realise that's not actually going to... It's not actually true and it's not really very helpful. And you're going to work out... You live in a world where, you know, my priorities are not necessarily the same as everyone else's or other people's. Mm-hmm. You know, quite often, 
if I have this really good idea for something I want to do with a bunch of writers and you go to the people who are funding it and you say, look, I've got this thing I think you should do and it'd be really great and you know the results will be really good and I've done these kinds of things before and the results have been good. Mm. And they go, no, uh, which happens a lot. You kind of go, well, their priorities are different and you just live in a world where you're going to get rejected all of the time. And it's, you know, the film business in particular is, is you know, Ben Gibson used to work at the BFI has a really great thing he said, which is, it's not that being turned down. The word no is not a problem in the film industry. The problem is a slow maybe. That's mm. what kills you. Is that you? You know, you're constantly on the edge of maybe, 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 and you can spend years on the maybe. Mm-hmm. It's better to have a no. Yeah. And then you. I often say on. that. I, I often say that. I, you know, I, I'd lo- I prefer to be in the hat for something to be, but to be told no quickly. Than to be kept dangling on the line. If you're that a applies writer, to anything, really. If you're a writer or you're a filmmaker, generally, the, the other thing is that no never means no. Mm. You know, they say no, and what they really mean is no for now. Yeah. And if you if things change and you've got a good reason to go back, you mm. know, a lot of stories, projects, you know, that got made, films that got made, stories that went, you were turned down and turned down and turned down, and then they say yes. So it's really no, 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 yes. So <laughs> rejection, you know, if you take rejection too hard, and you allow it to kind of knock you back, and you give up, you go, okay, well, you know most of the films I know that got made were turned down a few times before they got accepted. You can, you can categorically testify. That yeah, that it's just like, you know, it's, if you, people say, ask me sometimes, what's the most you know, valuable skill to have as a filmmaker? I would say uh, persistence, mm-hmm. more than talent. How do you, talent. Uh, the other side of that as well is that you would have primarily, maybe not have been the hatchet man directly, but how would you have let people down gently? Or are you somebody who believes in it hard and fast now? I certainly believe if you're turning people down, I used to do this when I was, again, my job at Development Every Screen, is you're writing, you know, I don't know, 100 in those days, letters or emails. You're writing 100 a week and 98 of them is a rejection. You know, you're saying yes to two out of two out of 100 and 98 you're saying no to. Yeah. I certainly believe in giving straightforward reasons why not. You know, if I say no to someone, I, the way I wrote the rejection... I Did you was, give feedback? Yeah, it was three, three paragraphs, three, three reasons why I said no. And these were specifically to do with what they'd given, mm-hmm. you know. So it wasn't vague. It was, you know, the script was enjoyable. There are things I liked about it, but these are the reasons why we didn't go with it. This, this, and this. And they're hopefully things that they can either agree or disagree with. Mm-hmm. But if they agree with them, they could do. So, they can attack those problems, attack those issues, or at least they can go with those issues and go to someone else and say, "You've read the script. Do you yeah. agree with that?" Well, they can fix the problems and, yeah. re- and re-enter the race ostensibly. Yeah. And it's also not personal. You know, it's not yeah. about you. It's about your work. So why, Steve, one of the things that, you know, that I've always learned from you is, is that understanding of the sort of the empathy on both sides, you know, and we, and we try and teach writers to understand what they're hearing from the development. Why, why would producers and development people uh, in the main not be able to say no quickly? <laughs> Partly it's because they don't want to say no. There's an emotional thing. It's painful. You know, you know you're letting people down. And partly, actually, they quite often get themselves manoeuvred into positions by the people that they're saying no to, where they kind of water the no down. Mm-hmm. The person says, what if I did this? What if it would, you know, could I come back to you and show it to you again? And quite often it's easier emotionally to say, well, okay, show it to me again, knowing full well that you'll turn it down when they do. But it postpones the kind of the inevitable for the people. So it's emotionally, you know... Uh, it sounds you know, like, a, like a pity sex. Yes. <laughs> scenario <laughs> that, that is and other times it's kind of you know they don't know 
You know, there's quite a lot of projects where people go, and these are difficult projects. You, you read a lot of producers get a script which is not good, but there's something in it. Or there's something in him or her. Yeah, yeah. and it's kind of like you're trying to go, out, well, what do I do here? And again, quite often it's, well, I, what I'll do, and I'm a great believer in this, in sometimes doing nothing. You know, and problems quite often mutate into, into opportunities if you do nothing. It seems like a, a manifesto for, you know, for torpor, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you're a producer, you go, okay, well... I'm not going to say yes, but I'm not going to say no. The thing goes away and comes back and actually it suddenly gets into good shape and you've done nothing. And a lot of producers know full well they've got many examples of that where yeah, they just yeah. Keep the flame, off. keep yeah. the flame burning just and, and, enough. And so it's a kind of strategy as well. It's, it's, it's a complex kind of set of different reasons why people do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's the best script you've ever read? That doesn't mean like the best uh, produced movie, but the best script off the page. You're like fucking hell. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's. Um, uh, it can be a classic, I guess. That was my no, idea as well. There, there, there's um, uh, the script for regeneration, the adaptation of the Pat Barker novel. Okay. Was uh, you know it just came off you know and off the page like it was wonderful. And there was a script for a film I was involved with called Photographing Fairies. The film, you know, was okay. But the script leapt off the page. There was a moment in that script about a man who doesn't believe, a man who's damaged, and he doesn't believe in hope. Essentially, his wife died. Um, it sounds and, like me. Continue. And, continue. And, <laughs> and he goes through a set of experiences, and then he doesn't believe in things like fairies, supernatural. In the story, he lies under a tree. Okay. He gets drunk, and he's under a tree. And um, I was on an aeroplane reading this script, a great place to read scripts normally. And... That he looks up in the tree and he sees fairies, and it's what it means is everything he's thought about the world is wrong. Right. That there there is this world, there's this magic in the world that you know he's given up on, yeah. and it, it was written absolutely perfectly, encapsulated that moment. And I sat on this aeroplane, and these tears were rolling down my cheeks, wow. and I'm sitting there thinking, you don't often get this with a script, you know, that actually it moves you in a way that a novel, moves, you know, yeah, it's yeah. almost perfect, and it, normally the script is kind of a suggestion of what it could be. This moment was great, and it's kind of like... And I gave that script to people at British Screen and said, read this, and it worked for those people. Yeah. You know, this, this idea that good scripts get missed is something that I'm, you know... Or they don't. You know, when a script is good, everyone knows it's good. doesn't mean that it's, it's actually... Like, it's potentially... Like, that anybody is even capable of making it at that time mm. for various different reasons yeah. in terms of financing and X, Y, and Z. And so many times, you know, you read a good script, and, and you know, there's so many reasons why a good script doesn't get made into a good film. Uh, you know, it, it's such a hard thing to do to make a successful film. Yeah. Um, and so, so many times, you, you know, you get a, and the, the converse is true that often you get a script which is mediocre mm-hmm. and it goes, and you look at the film, and the, the filmmakers have brought it into something else entirely. Mm-hmm. It becomes magical. So it, it kind of it works both ways. What about you, Colin? Best script you've ever read? Don't say one of your own. <laughs> um, or the best, you know, the best, or even the best project, I guess, you've been involved in. In that regard, in terms of the strength they, of the material, they all, they all have things that you connect to, and all things that you know. There's reasons for for what you know. It's a lot, I always say it's a hell of a lot of money to spend, you know. And even some of the shorts that we made were fifty hundred grand. It was more money than this some is people pounds see, as well. Yeah, in uh, twenty years ago, and they, and more money than some people see in a year. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it's got to really have some. It has to have a reason to live, you know. Um, and as Steve said, you know, the script and the film are, are different different things, you know. Mm-hmm. So I can't I couldn't say. 
I couldn't pick a favourite. I couldn't possibly out of all I my children. Favorite, yes. <laughs> uh, but you know, much like I've spent a lot, you know, on, on under Steve's uh, mentorship and guidance, I'm really grateful. That when I was starting my own company, one of the things I did was read ev- everything. So it was re- even a tiny little com- company in in a back room in Belfast. I was getting about three hundred scripts a year yeah. and trying to trying to read nearly all of them. You know, so I spent about two or three years doing that, and then in I did did a sort of adjunct for Northern Ireland Screen for a very, very number of years in their development, re- reading a lot. Um, and I suppose I think one of the other things I always took from you, Steve, is that, that if someone has sat down and written a script, mm-hmm. do you want to pick up from that? Yeah, I, I have this rule for myself, which I had at British Screen, which made my life extremely difficult. If someone's taken the trouble to write a script start to finish, I'm going to take the trouble to read it start to finish. I don't put a script down, even if I know I'm going to turn it down. I read it to the end, and that's because, you, and for me, you, it's not even necessarily respect for the writer, respect for the craft. Yeah. You respect screenwriting, and you, you've got to do it. You have to leave it all out on the pitch, man. Sometimes, you know, you get to page 82, and there's an absolutely astonishing scene, and you think, I thought this writer wasn't able to do what they need to be able, and my God, I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get, every now and then, you get a prize for, for doing that. I don't like hearing people say, you know how good a writer is in 10 pages. I think that's bullshit Mm -hmm. i think all of us you know are capable of writing brilliant openings Mm -hmm. and scripts and all of us are capable of writing crappy openings you know somewhere in most scripts there's something good Mm -hmm. you know and if you say well i read the first 10 pages for a distributor it's different distributors getting sent stuff all the time and they're assessing the market the kind of film it is the audience is a different process but in development Mm -hmm. you know if you have to me it's to do with self-respect and the craft rather than the person's whose script it is you should finish it and you know, if that means you have to take an hour, you know, because I read fast, obviously, mm-hmm. I've done it for a long time, I take an hour. And, you know, the other thing means, if you know, you know how long it's going to take, so you can't, you know, get on a half-hour bus ride with a script and think, well, I'm going to read the script because you're not going to finish it in the time. Yeah. So you've got to put the time Give it the time it, it deserves. I've written myself. I've rewritten screenplays. It's yeah. really hard, and it takes an enormous amount of time. And it's kind of like if someone's going to do that, even getting to the end and writing the end is a real achievement. Yeah. Getting it good is something spectacular. <laughs> you know, so you've got to respect that and you've got to give people the chance. And you've also got, you know, say you've got to read it all the way through because that's your job. That's what you signed up for. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for people saying, oh, you know, I'd read 30 pages and I'd put it to one side. Yeah, I know a few people who actually say that, you know, I'll, I'll read the first 15 pages no. and if it catches me, I'll, 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 I mean, I've been yeah, told that. You're looking for that, obviously, but, you know... Sometimes you think this is a great story badly told, mm-hmm. you know, and you get to the end and you think, okay, now the question then is, is this writer going to be able to do it? So yeah. Now that's where you or can it be fixed in the first place? Yeah, and it's like, and that's the next set of questions you ask. But you know, you get to the end and you go, I've done that many times. You think this, if you got it right, is terrific. Yeah. You know, and then how do we get it right? And have I got the time? And am I the person to get involved? And you know, is it right? And all those questions you ask, but you've got to get to the end to ask those questions. Yeah. Are there any characteristics that a person has that you can spot fairly early on to be a good writer? Or is it all on the page? In terms of meeting them? In terms of meeting somebody. If you, no. There's no, there's, I've, I've, there's no identifiable characteristics. I know, I've, 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 I've had you know, trolls walk into the office and you <laughs> think this person... And they really irritate you. Literally, the moment you see them, you want to kick them out of the room. And they're terrific writers. I've had wonderful, lovely people who are sophisticated and complex and sympathetic and they draw you in when they talk and when you read it, it's kind of as dry as dust. It's, you know, it, you can't, 
it really you can't judge a book by its cover in this situation. You know, yeah. I've had people that you can talk to about their work and they're, you know, wonderful and you have interesting conversations with people who are completely disinterested in having any input whatsoever to their work. And they're terrific writers. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the job. It's okay. If you have someone who really hates talking about their work to anyone else, mm-hmm. how do you have that conversation? Yeah. That's my problem, not theirs. You know, it's, uh, it's up to us to, you know, if you're working with people like that, you've got to make it work. And that's your job, not, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have to fit in with your notion of what a writer should be. Mm-hmm. You have to find a way of working with them that makes them improve the story. How do you get the, so, so by that writing. rationale, how do you get the best out of a writer? That's where the skill of development is, is you have to work out what they are and who they are mm. as people. And you have to find a... It's kind of just a way of talking to someone, you know. It's, you've got a mutual interest. Normally they're going to be in, you know, your orbit because they think they might get something out of this. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they simply have to talk to you because you, you're connected to the money, you know. So it's an obligatory conversation. In that situation, you try and get to the point in the conversation where they go, I want to be in this conversation for reasons other than I have to be. Okay. You know, and you've got to get them to that point. And once they get to that point, then you can have a... Most writers, in my experience, if you can get to the, as it were, the root of the issues in the story, not necessarily the problems, but what the story fundamentally is, mm-hmm. those things fascinate them. Yeah. You know, so they'll talk to you. Have you got... Have you ever had a situation where you clashed quite badly with somebody, but you found a mutual... Um, when I say clash boy quite badly, I mean to the point that you, you know, com- uh, communication was at a minimum... But you still got excellent results from somebody that you're, yeah, I mean, as an organization you yeah, were working I, with. I, I had the pleasure, a difficult pleasure, of working with a woman called Sarah Kane, who's a playwright. <sighs> yeah. um, and she was extraordinarily difficult to, she had, you know, very difficult life. But um, incredible. I mean, if you've read any or seen any of her shows. Yeah. And with her, it was very, very hard to talk to her. Um, but you found out later that she really got a lot out of the stuff. I was working with Vince, Vince O'Connell, who was a director who was working with. And we did a short with Sarah, one of the few, few things she wrote that got produced for kind of uh, cinema yeah. before she died. And um, it was really, you know, it was, it was like pushing treacle uphill. Um, but the work was fantastic, and that was kind of her process. She interrogated relentlessly. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't have any... Bullshit, you know, and she was really tough on herself, much tougher on herself than we were on her, mm-hmm. and she was tough on you, and really hard. And I thought, at the time, I thought this is this isn't this isn't working at all. And afterwards, I found that she was quite brilliant, grateful for the process. Yeah, and brilliant. Yeah, but yeah, she she's was, incredible. She was very, very difficult. Yeah, I've never really quite uh, a handful of kind of theatrical players have seen that have been that visceral as her stuff I can tell you a better story than that I had Go a ahead. postcard from Salman Rushdie <laughs> who I worked with briefly who told me that um, when I finished talking to him in the meeting he went outside onto the street and literally vomited into the gutter <laughs> and I had that postcard on my office wall for about four years um, because I made the mistake of telling him that I didn't think what he wrote was perfect oh. and you know I had mild it was a, a, I, my recollection of the conversation is I simply you know gently said to him it's I not thought, working you know, for me could do a little bit of work you know we'll make, make it better and you know he was like you know, I made him physically sick and well, I was like okay well you know why was he why was he there that was the question I was asking what is Simon Rushdie and it was interesting because it was a height of the time where he was you know under the fatwa yeah. so we had special branch officers with pistols under their arms outside my office Jesus. you know so when, before he came the special branch had to come and check out that we didn't have kind of you know terrorist you know killers in our office and stuff and then he was brought in and then we had this rather peculiar conversation about a short story that he wanted to adapt 
And, you know, and I'm like, given who he was at that moment, anyone in the world would have paid for that. He didn't have to come to public money. Yeah. Because they're gonna, it was a short film, there were so many people willing to pay for it. And I was sitting there thinking, why is he here? I don't understand what's going on here. Um, maybe he just wanted to get out of the house, you know, because he was, you know. Anyway, so I had the postcard. So that was, uh, that was, uh, that was an entire, complete failure of communication that never got amended. I never saw the man again. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, it's an important exercise to realise that you may not always get on with who you're working with, but the, the play is the thing. Yeah. The job is the thing. And however you get there, you get there kind of thing, right? With writers, my, object, my ob- objective is respect. Mm-hmm. I don't care about... I mean, I, I'm slightly suspicious of liking writers too much. I find writers immensely likeable. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that's dangerous because they're not my friends when I'm working with them. Mm. And you can be very... You can get into trouble because particularly if you're working on a, a story together and you both get it and you're working closely... You know, it's like a friendship. You know, you, you get on really well. But the point is, you have a professional job to do and they have a professional job to do. And if you're not careful, you can, that can get snared up, you know, so that the emotional cost of being brutally honest at a certain moment mm-hmm. is too much because they're your friends now. You know, and are you prepared to lose that friendship because you're going to have an argument about this particular thing? You're you're a better writer than you think you are, yeah, yeah. and you're not going where you need to go. And I'm this is now the third year of work on this project, and I'm getting sick of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's you at the problem, not the story, not the characters. You, you're better than you are, and you're not prepared to go there. And I'm getting to the point where I'm fed up. Yeah. Okay. Now that conversation you can't really have with a friend because how did they, Sal, how did Salman Rushdie take that? Yeah, he was, you know, <laughs> He said to his he rushed friend, he, he rushed eat outside. He said to one of his cops, he said, "Shoot this man! Shoot this man!" That son of a bitch. Yeah. So you know, so you, so you, you yeah, you can, it's an interesting job because you know you get very close to people. Yeah. And then they walk out and they make the movie. You know, and the movie gets. And you, it must be immensely gratifying though when that happens. Yeah, it is, but it's yeah, it is, but it's also quite strange because they walk out and make the movie. And quite often, you never see them again. Wow. And you were that close intensely for that period of time. And then it finishes. It's like like brief love affairs. Yeah, it's like these intense flashes of relationships which disappear again. Wow. And and you've got to psychologically, you know, you've got to be and know that's going to happen. You know, otherwise people try and make these relationships last longer than they. You know, it's kind of again you mistake it for a friendship and you want it to keep going and it's not. It was an intimate professional relationship. Relationship, yeah. yeah. What about the balance of power uh, in development relationships? You know, between producers, developers, financiers, and, and the writer. It's inter- as the project goes through its phases, that relationship evolves and changes. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of the process, if the thing is going to get made, the most powerful person in the room is the director. The closer you get to pre-production, the more powerful the director is, to the point where there comes a point in the development process where if there's an issue that's close to pre-production, you as a development person should probably side with the director whether you think they're right or not mm-hmm. um, because the thing is going to get made. Okay? And towards, you get to, towards that point, the writer is kind of diminishing in value mm-hmm. because, you know, the, particularly if the film is financed, for example, you know, the, the, the notion of the script as a, kind of, as, a, as, a, as a sales mechanism is finished, it's done its job, yeah. people are on board, so now the director has to make the film. And the writer may be quite right in the thing that the director is saying is not being honest or true to what they were thinking about, but that is no longer of very much importance because no. the film's getting made. The question is, how do we get the film made well? And that, so towards the end, you're really working for the purposes of the producer and the director, and the writer falls away. And the writer just has to know this. 
you know, and you can have, I can have the conversation with the writer because I'm not, in some circumstances, it's quite helpful mm-hmm. because I'm not the producer, the director. I say, look, you've got to understand what's going on here. Mm-hmm. You know, the producer has to be on the director's side because he's working with them for the next four or five months. You're not going to be there. He's yeah. always going to choose the director. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. So what's the easiest way to actually remove a writer from set then? Give them, a, <laughs> give them some money to write another script. Yeah. Seriously, get them working on another project. But, you know, the relationships are different every time. Sometimes writers and directors and producers get on really well. But it's, you know, it's, it's a very, it's generally speaking a polarising process. Generally writers feel bruised, particularly first-time or second-time writers. Yeah. The process of getting a film through into production bruises a writer. Yeah. Hurts. And it really hurts, you know, because these people were, you were very close to and then they walk away. That's the process. You know, the director has to make the film. The producer has to get the film out. You know, mm-hmm. and you are, as the writer, for a while, the least important person in the process because you can't contribute anything to that process. Your work's done for a while. In the edit, quite often, it might resuscitate in some way, yeah, of certainly course, yeah. through production. You've nothing to offer, and it's so hard producing, making a film, production. You haven't time for people who are not relevant to the process. Yeah. You've got to get on with what you're supposed to be doing to make it as good as possible. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little, a leading, segueing nicely on, into the, uh, the couple of workshops that you're doing for us, can you tell us a little bit about uh, both of the individual classes in terms of the, um, there's, been a, uh, in, uh, there's been a couple of interesting debates about what this, uh, what this class is, uh, the first class, the power and gender, power slash gender class. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what people can expect from that? It's a workshop which is really about how it's really about power uh, more than gender. The emphasis is, is on how does power affect the way that we realise characters? How do you write, Karen? How does power work? Yeah. Um, and that coincides with two different areas of work that I've been interested in. Firstly, I started to look at how men and women understand stories and, and it's the idea that stories are all the same for everybody and, and everything is like one harmonious whole and it doesn't really make any difference between genders, for example, is, is not true in the sense mm-hmm. that if you put men and women in separate groups and they tell stories to each other and you record this, and this has been done hundreds and hundreds of times by sociologists and linguists in different disciplines, not in filmmaking. If you record these people uh, talking and then you analyse how it works, it works in a different way. Women tell stories to women for different reasons than men tell stories to men. In a nutshell, men's storytelling, male storytelling, broadly speaking, is competitive. Your job when telling a story is to be the one who's telling the story, and if your story goes down well, you tell mm-hmm. another story. Men in the pub. Okay? Yeah, it's a d- dick measuring yeah. contest. It's kind of like that. And when yeah. women tell stories, broadly speaking, it's about affirmation of the community together. So they tell stories about their own experience, and they swap stories, and it's not as competitive. And that's one. That one difference actually changes the nature of the stories they tell. Mm-hmm. So I was fascinated by this research. It's not about film writing or television writing. It's about men and women in pubs. But I thought, okay, if you go away and think about that, what it means is there are historically big differences between the functions of stories for people of different genders. And just how is that expressed, actually? And is that true in terms of the stories we read and the mm-hmm. stories that get made? And I was interested in a lot of issues of about right diversity and representation, that we want more women directors, we want more female writers, and all this stuff I'm very much in support of because I'm very bored with a lot of the stories we get, and I think more diversity means more conflict and plurality, and we're going to get some interesting stuff coming out of that. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. My work is in, in the shaping of stories. What difference does it make whether the story is from one gender or another? And gender, even that, is complex. It's, it's, a, it's a spectrum, not a you know, binary thing. Yeah. And is it true that, you know, our stories are in some sense mono-gendered, have been? 
And then I went to look at the history of how we understand how stories should be written, which is there's a whole, you know, there's libraries of books on this and courses and stuff. And the, the fact is, and it's a fact, not a debate, the fact is that nearly all of that work has been produced by men and nearly all of that work has been produced by white men. Okay, now this is an unarguable fact. Mm-hmm. If you go and look on the library shelves, that's what you'll find. Yeah, it's an inalienable truth. It's, and it is I went to look at kind of where that work came from, and when you look into the history of it, a lot of it is really bad scholarship. The stuff of the heroic journey, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into it in detail, but come to the workshop and you'll get an hour of it. It's nonsense. It's badly researched scholarship, which is very biased, and it doesn't represent the complexity of the situation at all. Mm-hmm. So we've got this kind of badly researched, kind of popular notion of story, and we're told all stories are essentially the same, and all stories about people going on journeys and whatever, and it's not true. <laughs> Half the stories that are collected ever by researchers from people's where, you know, ethnographic research are stories told by women to children. And those stories don't feature heroes in that way. It's an entirely different way of telling stories. None of those stories are involved in this theoretical notion of what the story is. All of that work was ignored by the people in history in the 20s and 30s and 40s who were formulating these ideas. Basically, these were men who were making stories that resemble the stories they tell themselves. So now we have different world. We have much more complexity and plurality. Where are the ideas about stories that come from different kinds of people? Women, for example. Mm-hmm. Where are they represented? Where are the kinds of stories? What would they be? And how do you mould those stories and those ideas with the old ideas we have to create a more complex idea of what stories can be? And I think the filmmakers and the TV writers and directors are making these much more complex, interesting stories. If you look at Handmaid's Tale, for example, structurally, mm-hmm. how that works is very different from any ideas that we have had over the past 50 years about how you tell a story. It, in many ways, it's radically different. A fleabag mm-hmm. is radically different in the way that it works, not in the characters, not in the plots. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how you tell it. And that's what I really... And I think, well, that breaking the fourth wall is, yeah, is, 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 is a trope that I don't think I've seen used by a female character in that way. And, it's, and, it's, and so I think we're getting lots of very interesting female characters who are technically very interesting. Yeah. They're quite different in the way they're working. And I think that comes from an influx of new ideas coming from different kinds of writers, mm-hmm. not just women, but many of them women, about how these stories... Are. And, I, and this is the whole kind of... I think there's a kind of melting pot at the moment that's going on. I think it's going to come out in the next 20 years. We're going to get new, as it were, form, formal ideas about what this is. But I think this work, not the theoreticians that we all talk about and have been you know, going to film school and learning about, um, I think the work that's coming out is going to change the idea of what how we understand stories. And this is what this workshop is about. How does new ideas about gender and about power and how, you know, if we have a lot more female characters, which will happen if you have a lot more female writers represented and female directors making, are female characters different in the way they're told? Not their lives than the detail of the character, but how structurally do you tell a story of a person whose attitude to power and how much power they have in society may be different from other characters we had in the past? Yeah. Now, I'm asking a lot of questions, and I don't really think I have many of the answers, but I think the questions are fascinating, and I think from those questions, we're going to get a lot more interesting work, and I think, kind of, I'm helping, helping a conversation conversation which already exists and mm-hmm. it's not my conversation i'm just contributing to it from a technical perspective yeah op- opening opening up a yeah. discussion yeah. yeah and it's like and how do you write it how do you write yeah. and i you know the inspiration for this was i daniel blake it was, wasn't a story about women i looked at daniel blake and i thought that character has no power no agency is in no sense of protagonist in the technical way we understand them yeah. and yet this film is engrossing and you're completely locked onto the character how does that work 
technically? What are they doing to make that character compulsive when he hasn't got all the tools available to him that normally you would use to make a character compulsive? Yeah. It's how do you write disempowered characters to be compulsive? And from that, I kind of stretched over into, okay, now let's look at female characters who are, yeah. you know, many of them disempowered. Too. Yeah, I think so we also have to, have to address the elephant in the room. This is not a men versus women no, it's, debate. No, it's, 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 it's a nonsense. It's like, this, I'm asking, how do you write disempowered characters, some of whom may be women? Every male writer needs to know the answer to that question. Yeah. Every female writer needs to know the answer to the question. The gender of the writer and the gender of the character is, in fact, of no interest. It's really, we're talking about a technical process of writing disempowered characters. Some of them may be women, so the details of their life will be to do with details of women's lives. Some of them will be men. The mm-hmm. details of those characters' lives will be the details of you know, male characters' lives. That's, that's kind of the background of the, each individual story. What I'm talking about is how do you make people who don't have power as interesting as Wonder Woman or you yeah. know, Batman, as compulsively powerful as a, as a superhero. Yeah. And you can't use the tools that you'd use for a superhero because those tools are for those kinds of heroic characters. And we're talking about people who aren't heroes. It's much more about how do you write the you could argue that You could argue that that's what I suppose they've done successfully with the Joker character. Now. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I think a lot of the most interesting work is saying, okay, we have to get rid of all those old Shifting the paradigm. Because it's, mm-hmm. it's boring. We've done it for so long, so often. Yeah. So how do we shift? And that's, I think, what's... I think a lot of the impulse for, you know, giving diversity, from my perspective as an old white man, I mm. welcome it because I'm bored with stories about old white characters. Yeah. And we've run out of ways of making them interesting. We need to give the responsibility to making some characters to different people and different kinds of writers from different backgrounds, from different social, you know, different levels of income. We need to, mm-hmm. because those, that's where the refreshing, it's like white music always takes from black urban experience. Yeah. Because that's how you make white music interesting. Because if you didn't, it would become incredibly boring. Yeah. We're in the same position with storytelling in yeah, yeah. film and television. We really good example, I suppose, is, is Tangerine. You know that movie, Tangerine? Yeah. Uh, which obviously was, you know, a, a breaking new ground on lots of different levels, both cinematically in terms of how it was made and obviously dealing with some of the themes and, character, and, and, and the characters within that story. I think that was a real linchpin in terms of, you know, the progressive storytelling in cinema. I've done a lot of work in Australia the last five, six years, and a good deal of that work was with Indigenous right. uh, Australian people, whose understanding of stories is entirely different from mine. So you sit in a... Uh, was a horror script a guy wrote, uh, a, a country singer, who lives in the middle of um, Australia, just outside Alice Springs, and he's got a career as a country singer, a huge country music scene in, mm-hmm. amongst Indigenous people in Australia, the Indigenous people. And he wrote this horror script, and it, it, I loved it. absolutely loved it. It's about a kind of black ooze that starts oozing up in the desert in the middle of Australia, and it starts affecting people oh, okay. in ways that people don't understand. And it's a struggle to, as it were, deal with this black thing that's oozing out of the ground. And there's kind of some <laughs> things going on here symbolically, you know, but he's, but he's not interested in making the symbol, you know. And it's, but the way that he tells the story, I, it was completely foreign to me. So I'd sit and ask the questions that you would ask a person from, as it were, Western culture. Yeah. <gasps> and it was kind of like I was asking him... The question just flew by the side of his head. He had no idea what I was talking about. He didn't realise he was... No, but it was like, so how do I make this story work? Because, it, it, you know, the, my questions make no sense to him. It's literally I'm talking a different cultural language. Was he not aware of some of the metaphorical... Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a country singer. He sings American country music. So he <laughs> knows about Western culture. He knows about Western narrative types and tropes. But, right. he was, but when he talks about story, in indigenous culture, community is everything. 
Yeah. It's your identity does not really exist without your community. So a hero is a concept they don't really understand, have no use for. The, the, the individual hero going out on a journey doesn't. It's like you don't. You you for a start, an indigenous person is connected to land, literally the landscape, mm-hmm. in a way that we have no conception of. So you you are never alone. You are part of a landscape. You're always in the landscape. You're part of an ecosystem, you know, essentially. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and your land is, you know, your, 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 your well-being is dependent on the well-being of the land you live on. And when you move off your land to a different land, you are separated from yourself. So a country indigenous person going to a city is no longer fully themselves without anything happening to them. There's no action. It's not a plot. Mm-hmm. It's the act, you know. And if you understand, that's what you have to understand if you're talking to these people. That's how he understands a character. So it's like, okay, this is an entirely different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. If these stories work, they will work. And I'm sitting here, and I'm a Western person. I'm thinking, Christ, this is amazing. The story is like so, on many ways it connects, and in many ways it doesn't. I don't get it, you know. And it's like this strange kind of thing where I kind of feel half in and half out. And this feeling of never quite being where you need to be in horror is a great feeling. That's what a lot of horror wants to generate in the audience, a sense of dislocation and alienation and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking, oh, God, if you could just get this right, and this, like, conversation been going on now with this guy, because... Another thing he does, he goes away. He disappears. That's what these these people, he goes on tour, or he just goes to family. And I suppose these are discussions people can expect at the It's Alive workshop. Yeah, absolutely, which is kind of, you know, uh, this is just, the It's Alive workshop, I would encourage people to come. It's a lot of fun. It's all about horror. (laughs) How do you write horror? You know, it's all about a number of different things. How do you frighten people? Yeah, you know, as a writer, well, there's sub, there's, the, thematically, there's sub uh, genres as well within yeah. horror. You know, obviously, there's a lot of comedic horrors. There's a lot of slapstick and black comedy in a lot of horrors. Yeah, even the most dark stuff. Absolutely, and it, and it walks that kind of line between being ridiculous and being scary. Yeah, and you know, if you go too far, scary becomes funny. You know, and if you yeah. and, and any horror film that takes itself too seriously is in danger. Of, yeah, what's your favourite horror movie, both of you? Uh, American Werewolf in London, I'm a big fan of. Uh, the Living Dead, Romero's Living Dead. Uh, Don't Look Now. Uh, Don't Look Now, yeah. the greatest psychological horror ever made, yeah. Um, the, yeah there's I always loved, loved what, that the amazing thing that you pointed out for us in the first time I heard this um, course, when you showed the clip of the opening of Don't Look Now, and you said... did. You asked the question in the audience, did anyone notice any, anything odd about the action man? Mm. You know, that, that he watched this film for years and years, and it's the little girl walking around, and there's the action man, and it's that ripcord, you pull the doll, and the voice says, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you listen to it, when it's pointed out to you, it's a female voice, and it says, fall in. <laughs> So it's you know it's not an action man voice. Yeah. It's and the, the way they mess it. It's a, it's a you know don't look now. You could do you could do a week long workshop on that film. It's an extraordinary piece. Of so coming up in two thousand and twenty, it's our week long <laughs> don't look now workshop. Yeah, I just pl- plug from my perspective is like you know uh, being involved to help help pull this together, make yeah. a connection here is because in particular, I mean I've always always loved. Um, uh, this this work has been vital in in my own life uh, because it's it's so detailed and clear and practical mm-hmm. but also in a way what what I think you do Steve is you're asking lots of questions you're coming from the cool face of and you know constantly thinking about it that in a way one of the major things I found was 
you give me the language that I sort of innately know, but I haven't been able to articulate. Mm. You know, it's not you're not sitting on a pedestal telling us stuff. You know, yes, I'm the shared. I'm the lord of the manor, and it yeah. should be this way. It's shared experience. I yeah. think yeah, it's it's I I, I kind of think that's in these works is what I I I get fascinated by these kinds of questions and I walk away and I, I you know it comes from my own work with writers because I'm constantly working with writers all the time so I'm, I'm not a theoretician and I don't write books you know I don't have do you a, do individual concentra- consultations do, yeah. with actors I do, I do okay well if anyone is interested in that and they want to reach out over the next you know while you're in town over the next kind of week yeah, week not? and a half you're welcome to if you want to drop us an email at fniraptchat at gmail.com and if you want to you know if anybody's interested in having some of their work looked over or a little bit of individual coaching you can reach out to us and we'll put you in contact with steve yeah by all means um what makes a good horror movie script um you've got to have a character who uh subconsciously doesn't realize how close they are to the thing they're most frightened of the 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 the, as well, the subtext of a horror story is the deep deep connection between the people who are running away from the thing that's frightening and what is frightening them. They're kind of part of two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Most good horror has really good subtextual sexual subtext. Mm-hmm. Most horror films are about sex one way or another, and you know it's just to to know that um, and to play with that in some way. And also the writer technically has to know how to scare an audience. There's, and this is not to do with the content of the story. Without giving too much away now. Without giving too much away, this is why she come to the workshop. You know, <laughs> so one person can write a horror story with, the, with, this, with telling, you know, this happening, and the, another person can write the same action, and one is frightening and the other isn't. It's not because of what the content is. It's not because of the story. It's the way you tell it. How do you write scary? Um, and that is a that is simply something that you can learn. There are ways of doing it. It's mm-hmm. not to do with, you know, yes, you've got to have a scary kind of monster and some scary ideas, but to actually scare an audience physically in the theatre, to make them jump, to make mm-hmm. them wet themselves, you know, is a technical process. It's not to do with if I have a scary enough monster, that will happen anyway. It won't happen automatically. You have to write it that way. Yeah. That's the thing. that If the writer knows that, they're in it's how you tell them right it's how you tell them it's how you tell them and exactly. one point there's two other things to pick up I suppose was the um, your sense of that um, perhaps uh, horror stories that may have thematic complexity but actually need to be very simple yes yeah they're much simpler than you know uh, the other thing about, about horror horror is a director's medium Above all others, you know, if your director isn't really great, it doesn't matter really how good the script is. Um, more so, I'd say, than any other kind of film story. If the director doesn't really know how to direct horror, you're in big trouble. It's, it's much more of a director's medium than a writer's medium. What that means in many ways is you kind of have to clear the landscape for the director. You have to make the story work. And in a fairly simple way, because mm-hmm. a lot of the things that are most exciting about horror are visual. You know, and it's to do with the director and the editor and the cinematographer and the, and the composer. And in more so, much more so than in drama, for example. You've got to have a story that has kind of space for those craftspeople to do what they do really well. And so if you're, horror is, a vi- is quite literally a visual medium. Now, film obviously is yeah. in general, but specifically it's, you know... It's to do with the detail. And if you make the thing too messy and complicated because you're overwriting it in some ways, then those people are going to spend their time fixing the things that you haven't done well. Mm-hmm. rather than being as good as they can be. So one of the things with the horror script is you've got to keep it relatively sparse and to be completely in control of what you're doing and not being over-ambitious in the writing. Mm-hmm. You know, you, in some sense you're pulling back. So that means your underlying structure has to be really good 
um, because the detailing is kind of relatively sparse because you've got to allow... You need to leave, you yeah. know, a, a good bit of room there for a yeah, blank canvas in terms to manoeuvre yeah, for a director. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, um, horror movies are, you know, uh, from my perspective, they're a guilty pleasure. I don't think it's anything that anyone really thinks about in, the, like, in terms of an art form necessarily. It's usually a guilty pleasure for people. So I think a class like this to get people thinking about that genre in a different way and that it's actually something that they can do, you know, and that it's, it's, it's You mentioned earlier about the sub-genres and one of the really fantastic pieces of, of this is the um, you do a whole history of horror plus every possible sub-genre. Yeah, it's... it's like, a, like a chubby checker megamix. <laughs> the, other, the other thing to say about horror... Okay, come on, everybody... Of all the genres, yeah. so, someone asked me this question the other day in relation to something else, of all the genres that there is, um, horror is the most uh, advanced in relation to women, female characters. You wouldn't think so, because you think, you know, all these horror films of women getting killed and women getting mutilated, and there's lots of kind of, you know, dodgy politics and a lot of horror, yeah. but actually, you know, women making, young women making independent decisions and winning in stories consistently over and over again, has happened much more in horror than any other genre. Well, Halloween is a great example. Yeah, all of those stories. Laurie, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And why do those women win? Because they're smart, they're intelligent, they're fast thinking, they're not inhibited by their sexuality, they are, you know, these are prototypal, collectively brilliant young women, young women as well, you mm. know, teenage girls. And, you know, when they start making horror in the 1950s, they made uh, horror and drive-in movies because the single biggest demographic seeing horror films and drive-in movies was young women going with other young women. You know, the, the, the single, that's why there are so many final girls in these movies, because when they did the research, who watches these films and the drive-ins, there were girls going with other girls watching horror movies. It's always had a very strong female audience, which people didn't understand and recognise. Mm -hmm. And they've always been really good for female characters. And it's a lovely subversive, you know, there's a, there's a kind of history of horror, which is exploitative and, you know, revolting. And then there's kind of another history of horror, which is all about subverting expectations and putting the wrong kinds of characters at the front and people you didn't normally find. And, you know, it's, horror is amazing for that. It's yeah. a lovely, rich mix. And today, like, an a, a, a extremely high percentage of... You know, compared compared to any other genre, extremely high percentage of female writers and directors, mm -hmm. and even in Ireland we have we have some as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's two or three in particular that are really popping. Kate Dolan being one of them, um, who was on the podcast, by the way. So listen back in, and you can find out all about Kate's journey up until well, about a year ago when we had her in. Um, what can we expect from both of you going forward, Colin? You're going to do a feature. Uh, well, we're finishing to this this week. We're finishing up the last of the five weeks of Get It Made. Mm -hmm. uh, really exciting to see the final scripts from those uh, students. It's been a great great fun, and that was a sort of you know in response to one of the posts on online. So I'd put the call out to the you know the the membership of the Facebook group is so if you want something in terms of training, you know, put a post up and ask for yeah, it. Yeah, let us know. And uh, and then in in response to that, um, I'll be doing in January um, a fourteen week course of writing a feature film from scratch. Mm -hmm. So again, like this one. All previous ideas are banned, and we start with a blank page, and oh, no. and in fourteen <laughs> weeks deliver a nineteen hundred page script. Um, so, yeah, and we'll be announcing more details of that uh, in kind of this uh, end of November, early December, to kind of go. I think kind of early January. Um, Mister O'Clerick, 
What are you up to? I'm off once I've been here in Dublin. I'm off to Scandinavia, doing some work in Scandinavia for a month or so. Then I'm off to Australia, and New Zealand until Christmas. Um, work, working down there, I, I do. I go twice a year down down under, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm got a new course I'm working on up at the moment that I want to do next year, which is about character, about how to about characters that people love. Yeah. Not just like pe- characters that work, but characters that audiences love. What's the you know what's the secret to that that kind of character writing? Um, what's uh, the magic formula yeah and how do you kind of pull an audience in and what is mm-hmm. it and you know what what makes those characters special and I'm, I'm just starting the research on that for myself just trying to look at a bunch of different films that, and TV that you know, does that and trying to work out what the commonality is and can I find any commonalities and that's what I want to do that comes from the people in France where I live been asking me that that's really what they want they want is it possible to have a course on a workshop on writing characters for television in particular mm-hmm. that audiences fall in love with and that's a really nice brief not audiences enjoy or audiences like or audiences come back to that they fall in love with and that's a really nice and they someone said this to me and I kind of thought oh, I've got to work out what that means you know mm-hmm. and who are these you know and, and are there is consensus of who those characters are and, and what happens in the stories that they're in that makes that happen and that's Fun. I'm not going to even think about it properly till next till January. But right. when I come back, I'm thinking I'm going to spend January kind of beavering away, just trying to work out the answer to that question. And then hopefully come back here. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometime next year. And we'd love to have you back. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a big, lofty, existential question at the end to finish off. Nice, simple, uh, yes or no answer. Um, why is film important? Why is filmmaking and movies important? And films. It's how you understand the world and it's a collective experience. I think, you know, you're sitting in a room with other people. Television, computers, online stuff is fine, but you tend to do it alone or do it with one or two other people. I think there's always a space like there is always going to be for theatre, mm-hmm. for that communal experience where you all sit in a room together and look at the light at the front of the room. It kind of echoes back to the ancient days of, you know, cave people in caves and, you know, the storytelling spaces in caves. The archaeologists have discovered this. When you look at caves which are acoustically... People went into ancient caves and said, why this cave? Why is it so busy? Mm-hmm. And they made an acoustic measurement of the place and actually the acoustic... Testing, testing, testing. It works yeah. for the telling of stories. So they say, OK, that was where the storyteller was at the front and this is where the people must have sat and it must have been lit because... Otherwise, you know, the place is pitch black, and they look in the ceiling, and where the torches were, there's all the mark, the scoring, the the the, the, the singeing. So, you know, thousands of years ago, people were sitting in the dark together, looking at the light. And that's what you do when you go to the cinema, and it's part of us that will always need that, mm. and that's why it's important because it's always going to be needed. So, what are we going to tell each other? Mm. You know, if we allow the bad people to tell the stories, then we end up with the worse world. Mm. And you know, we're we're going through this particular crisis I think in the last while has been a destruction of community and that isolation that comes from you know supposedly the you know the, the dream of the internet was sort of networking everybody mm. but that virtual world yeah I enjoy some online communities but it is no replacement for for being in the real world yeah. and if, you know when when global politics are so out of our individual reach the only thing we have is one-on-one building community. I mean, yeah. I, you know, that's why I'm involved with FNI. It's why I want to make films. You know, I want to, I want to have something that connects with it. With the, it you want to communicate. Yeah. Mm. And the, the loveliest experiences are exactly like returning back to Steve's story about, you know, seeing Godspell. You know, for me making a film when I, you know, 
I, I've sat with a film I've made and 300 people gasp at once. You just cannot, you can't make it up. Yeah, it's goosebumps. Or, you know, mm-hmm. being able to help with the big, you know, explosive moment in Good Vibrations where people jump out of their seat and start dancing in the aisles, you know. It's just <laughs> like, job done, you know. That's, yeah. That, yeah. That's what it's about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a curveball at you, which is completely off topic, uh, just because it just popped into my head. Uh, you don't have to go into this in as much detail as you can, but a yes, a yes or no, and you can elaborate if you like. Scorsese coming out during the week saying about Marvel movies not being cinema, right or wrong? Kind of right, but <laughs> there's always been spectacle in cinema, you know. But it, it's it's kind of somewhere between a fairground ride and cinema. I would say I agree with that. You know, once that logic gets even better, you know, you're gonna. Once you get 3D goggles that you put on your head and you've, you're going to be flying through those kind of movies in 20 years or 30 years, and it's going to, they're mutating towards something else, I think. So I think it's kind of right. But, you know, what do I know? I'm just an old guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, Carl, anything to add to that? No, I totally agree. I mean, you know... The, He's the, kind of right and kind of wrong. Yeah. You know, this is... Those thing, things are driven by... By a, a, you know, a need to get a huge audience and money, you know, and mm. like down in Parnell Street, you can go and watch those in 4D where they throw water on you and shake your seat around and all that sort of stuff. And as Stu said, like cinema was also born in the Carney, you know, that yeah, was, yeah. it was this, cook, yeah, you know. So there is always that part, but uh, uh, what, what for me there is a really on, only one. I would say only one person who's made cinema, and that's Tarkovsky. Yes. Other people have got close, mm-hmm. but my own experience of the last hundred years of, of what I look at, no one's got got anywhere near the moments of what I think are the purest version of cinema, mm-hmm. and that's where we should be continuing to move towards. Yeah. Keep and, and a side note there. Keep uh, and if you go to YouTube, guys, as far as I know, all of uh, Tarkovsky's movies are available to view for free on YouTube now. The, I think the majority of his back catalogue, anyway, are all up there to view. Um, so yeah, just a, qu- a quick recap. Stephen is with us on the twenty third. 24th for Gender and Power, uh, that workshop which is on in Balfe uh, Street in Dublin Business School, our really cool uh, uh, new uh, uh, partners. And uh, on the 26th and 27th, it is It's Alive workshop, um, which is, you, you can tell us what. And followed by on the 27th. Yeah, yeah and, and followed by on the 27th, we have, just from a producer's point of view, we have, uh, for our Get It Made series of classes, we have a networking session, a brief one for an hour or so in the Wild Duck from about 6.45 to about 8 o'clock. So if you're a producer and you're uh, involved in a production company of any level, really, uh, and you want to come along and you want to try and maybe get ahead of the curve and meet and read uh, one of the 20 or so uh, participants and read their finished 10-page script and package uh, and they, they're working on their pitches like crazy behind the scenes, so they're really eager. And you might, you know, it might be something that you might want to get involved in to invest in somebody early on at the start of their career. So there's that, and then again, our networking night on the twenty seventh, uh, which is the same the same night in the same venue, but a little bit later on from eight o'clock. It's fancy dress. There's prizes all over the gaff. 
uh, we're giving away all sorts of stuff and uh, there will be music and live vi- visualizations and all sorts of fun and crack so get involved uh, our t- hashtag is um, uh, we, hashtag we are FNI you can get us on Instagram uh, forward slash Film Network Ireland the same with Facebook forward slash uh, Film Network Ireland and on Twitter uh, at FNI underscore film uh, thanks a million lads for your time you are very good thank you Thanks.